It is Tuesday, July 26th, 2022, and it's Justin Shackle welcoming you to episode 45 of Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. We focus on the art of pitching every single episode with the five-time World Series champ, the Cy Young Award winner, David Cohn, the ace researcher, James Smythe, and myself. A lot of topics to get to this week. We have the Subway Series coming up in New York. We are inching closer to the trade deadline, wondering if another big-name pitcher could be had in a deal. We'll mention that name and Dodgers pitching is about to get healthier. And we're also going to be talking about adjustments in between starts for several starting pitchers, but one in particular, David James, how are we doing guys? What's going on? Doing great. We're moving right along, right? Post all-star break. Going to get through the dog days, head down the stretch. Should be, should be a fun September. Yeah. Trade deadline heating up. We got a week to go. And there are a couple of new wrinkles from Last week to this week involving the trade deadline, some details on maybe an asking price for Juan Soto, but some interesting names that have been popping up over the last five days. And we're going to possibly look at a name who could be popping up on the horizon between now and next week's trade deadline. There's a, there's one item to note, though. This show is going to be hitting uh, linear television. It's going to be going on uh, the Yes Network. First episode of Telling the Slab. Uh, pitching with David Cohn's coming up on Tuesday, the 26th. So the day that this episode airs, we're coming on after the Yankees and the Mets. So a big shout out, big thank you to Jimmy and Jake and the fine folks at the Yes Network and pretty good placement, right? Right after a Yankees Mets Subway Series game, especially when there's so much juice this year with these two teams doing well, not too bad. Uh, that's 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 a big favor to us, right? Nice. Yes, uh, you've got to, you know, John Filippelli, Jared Boschnack, got to thank them a lot. John Littner, uh, I know Jimmy and Jake talked about this when they first started, you know, and really real on Twitter. We noticed them. I think Michael Kay went on their podcast and then we mentioned them on the air and here we are, uh, you know, all these, not, not really all these years in, in short fashion and the meteoric rise of John boy media now uh, coming to the yes network. So it's great. We're glad to be a part of it. Yeah. They have talking Yanks currently running on the yes network and you're right. Who could have imagined we have, uh, a show here. Obviously, you have the YouTube stream. Now you're gonna have it on the S Network. We're we're sipping mugs with your mug on it, <laughs> and we're talking pitching here, guys. So it's a it's a fun thing. Check it out on the S Network coming up uh, starting this week after the first Yankees Mets Subway Series game. Okay, uh, we'll have this week of pitching history. Three up, three down. A boatload of topics to get to. But first, each and every week, David starts us off with the opener. David, what do you have this week? I think we we are we are all of of uh, the same mind that we're we're crushed for Michael King. You know, we he's a friend of our show. He actually hosted the show and last week, a couple of weeks ago, when I was out down for the count with my hip replacement surgery. Just a great guy. I've met his father and his family, his mom, fantastic family. Actually, his father and Carl Ravitch, the play-by-play guy for Sunday Night Baseball, are really good friends, too. So he kind of made the entree for me to actually meet and talk. And uh, it's just devastating when you when you see the type of year he was having, really establishing himself as not only a mainstay in the Yankees bullpen, but one of the best relievers in the league, that he comes down with, with a fracture in his elbow and his throwing arm. And it is scary. It's it's our hearts go out to him right now. We don't know the extent of the damage to his elbow until they until they do surgery. I've heard that Tommy John might be on the table. It depends on what it looks like when they get in there, I guess. So, yes, um, 
Yeah. What more can you say, guys? You know, Michael King, our, our hearts go out to you and uh, we wish you all the best and a speedy recovery. Yeah. What you saw on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, the way Mike entertained us and was so down to earth and really transparent talking about pitching. That's who you get off camera, off the mic when you're just having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with him in real life. So he has been a guy that's it's, it's been enjoyable to, to get to know him a little bit here in his young Yankee career, but you're right. It, our, you know, send our hearts, our, our thoughts with him, his family as well. This was a big year for him. He was establishing himself. David, like you said, is one of the most valuable relievers in the game and it, the uncertainty of it all right now kind of makes it a little scary as well. So we're hoping for the best, obviously hoping Michael has a speedy recovery. I guess a good question here though, as it pertains to this specific injury is how this affects the, the Yankee bullpen landscape, right? Trade deadlines coming up a week or so from now. And, and this was a big blow Kings, personality yes the stuff that he was showing for sure the presence he was showing establishing himself in this bullpen but overall you take that piece of depth away what do the Yankees have in the bullpen right now James I've been in that situation where there's a devastating injury in a clubhouse a major league clubhouse like that and the descriptions I heard after the news after that game and people heard what happened to Michael King they were blown away it was utter silence after that game Everybody felt uh, the loss. Everybody knows that this changes everything for the landscape of the bullpen, as Shaq said. So, yes, uh, he's irreplaceable right now. And, you know, James, he, he arguably, you know, maybe the most productive reliever in the game, certainly in the American League, top three maybe. Uh, it depends on what metrics you want to use, war or whatnot. But the emotional impact on that team in the clubhouse afterwards really was, was striking to me because I've been in that situation where, where you lose a, a very prominent player and, and it's – it's like a morgue in the clubhouse afterwards. Yeah, striking to, to hear all of that coming out of a, a Yankee win um, and still having such a somber um, atmosphere around the team. King, as far as the American League ranks, he was top 10 in just about everything. He was top three in war. He was leading in strikeout percentage. Um, I think he was even more valuable to the team than even someone like Clay Holmes because of his ability to, because of his versatility, his ability to go multiple innings. Uh, he's been having such a great year and he's a really easy guy to root for. So it's just a real gut punch to, to see that. Yeah. Everything you say is so true with, with Michael King's situation. I, I guess the, the one silver lining in this with the way the Yankees have structured their organization look king came through yeah he was acquired from the marlins as a minor leaguer but he kind of came through their system you, you see guys like clark schmidt jp sears kind of fitting that mold being groomed for that mold and there are a couple of others who are pitching really well in triple a who are being molded to serve in that specific role can give you a couple of innings perhaps start down the line but be that multi-inning threat and long relief option out of a bullpen that is kind of always in shutdown mode. So there is a silver lining there, but you know, we're, we're more focused on Michael King's health, his outlook, how he bounces back to this. So we definitely send our best wishes to, to Michael King and David, like not to, I mean, not to get like all grim reaperish here, but you, you brought it up. Like you've been in that situation before in terms of, player reaction, teammate reaction and clubhouses after key guys go down with some 
ominous injuries over the years. Is, is a name pop into your head right off the bat of, of past teammates when you talk about something like that? You know, I was, I was on the Mets in 1987 and it was the year, obviously after the 86 Mets, they won the world series and all five starting pitchers went down with an injury at one time or another, but we were actually making a run late in the year. And it looked like, you know, we, we had a chance to catch the Cardinals and Ron Darling uh, broke his thumb on a bunt play. You know, he got, he jammed his thumb on the ground uh, and somehow, uh, you know, ended up breaking his thumb and he was out for the rest of the year. And he's a big starting pitcher. Ron Darling was a really good starting pitcher back in the mid eighties. Most, most Mets fans know him as a broadcaster, the younger fans, but he was a big part of the 86 Mets and he's a big part of the Mets in that era. And when we lost him down the stretch, it was as if, you know, we're not going to make it now. We're just not going to catch the Cardinals. So I, I remember the clubhouse after that game in, in Shea stadium, actually it happened at home. And, uh, and that was, that was a real battle trying to get back in the race and, you know, we lost Darling. That was it. You know, the whole clubhouse kind of felt it. Is so much of the Yankees' big success this year has been the success of key relievers who on opening day you may have not thought would be key relievers. So that, that's a big piece there. King's a big blow. But you bring up Ron Darling. You bring up the 87 Mets. We're talking Yankees as well. Yankees-Mets, first installment of the Subway Series happening this week. It begins on Tuesday, the day this podcast comes out. Tuesday, Wednesday, quick two-gamer over at City Field. We have the pitching matchup for the first game, Jordan Montgomery, Taiwan Walker. A lot of TBD going around for that second game, though. It looks like Max Scherzer is going to be starting uh, for the Mets and could be Domingo Herman for the Yankees, maybe uh, uh, J.P. Sears, perhaps. James, I know you have a, a strong opinion who you'd like to see. So overall, with, with this two-game series here at city field what is the main thing to watch for on the field with two teams that are currently in first place well you know i obviously you know james has has some unique insight in terms of of breaking down the numbers and what he's seen himself but yeah it's the yeah, Darren Boone kind of joked the other night somebody asked him we you know espn reaches out because espn has the wednesday night game and Aaron Boone kind of joked uh, when talking about who's going to pitch Wednesday. And he said, well, we don't know yet. It could be Montgomery. It could be Castillo. And then he kind of hesitated a minute and sort of like a couple of Yankee minor leaguers got pulled out of the game last night, you know, sending Yankee Twitter into a frenzy. So I don't know that it's going to be Luis Castillo starting for the Yankees on Wednesday, but Aaron Boone threw the joke out there. I thought it was kind of funny, but that's the, you know, the nature of, of this rivalry has changed. This city is going to light up for this particular series, especially at City Field. The, the, the fact that the first two games are at City Field is important, especially for the Mets and their base and their franchise. They really feel it this year, even though the Braves are right on top of them. They've got their own problems in the National League East. But nonetheless, it's still the Yankees and the Mets. Both teams are good. We've been waiting for this for a while. We were, I was part of the, the 2000 Subway Series that was just uh, lit up. I mean, we had police escorts for the team buses to go back and forth. From the from the stadium, so yeah, you really feel like you're you're part of something really big when when the Yankees and Mets get together and both teams are really good and fighting for a playoff spot. There's more juice to this Subway Series than I've heard about in years because the two teams are so good. It's two of the four best records in the major leagues going into this, and it's a good test for both teams because they both hit and they both pitch. So the Yankees and Mets are both top four in the majors in runs allowed 
per game, and they're both in the top six in runs uh, runs scored per game. So it's a good test for the Yankees staff against the Mets bats, who have been scuffling lately but have been very good overall. Good test for the Mets staff against the Yankees, who are scoring the most runs in the major leagues. Those two stats, James, kind of just put it in a, a nice tight package on where these two teams are are kind of currently at in their respective seasons. Yankees obviously have the better record. But records aside, like how wide is the gap between these two teams when you watch with your eyes on the field, David? I think the Mets are a little short in the slugging department other than Pete Alonzo. They, they have a really good on-base percentage. They get a lot of traffic on the bases, but they have trouble – with the big hits and the big, big slugging percentage type, type, type of numbers. So that's why they're in the market, you know, for somebody like a, like a Vogelbach to DH. They, they've really struggled from the DH position, struggled from the catcher position as well. The bottom of their order has struggled uh, throughout the year. Pete Alonzo right in the middle of everything in their lineup. He could use a little help, whether that's somebody like a Josh Bell from the Nationals or somebody that can hit the ball out of the ballpark. That's what they need. Uh, that's, and they also have the wherewithal and the resources to go and get anybody they can. They would be in on Juan Soto if they could get him. I'm sure. I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure that Washington wants to trade him in, in the division to the Mets, but the Mets are players, their ownership, uh, it will, will, will use every resources he, he has every resource he has to, to make any trade that's needed. Now, he's the one who made the mandate when he first took over in his introductory press conference. Steve Cohen said, I'd like to win a World Series in three to maybe five years, you know, and if I don't, I'll be mildly disappointed. And that sent a message really throughout the organization. It's like, whoa, <laughs> this guy means business. And this trade deadline is going to be really interesting for the Mets as well because they need a slugger. They could use a little slug. The Yankees lead the majors in slugging. The Mets are right in the middle at 15th. And over the last few years, it's been slugging percentage. That is the, you know, if you're one team wide stat that correlates best with run scoring for many, many years, it was on base percentage. Slugging was right there. Slugging is kind of ticked ahead of that with, with power being, uh, being part of the game. That's, you know, that's been a bugaboo for, for James and I for a while as everybody says, well, you know, in postseason, that style doesn't work. You know, you got to bunch them together and you got to manufacture runs. Actually, it's just the opposite the team that homers more. And James, I know we, we've talked about this quite a bit, but uh, a big home run against somebody like Justin Verlander actually might be a better chance to, to beat somebody like the Houston Astros or your big pitchers. But yeah, it doesn't change in postseason. You still need to slug. Yeah, homers are even more important in October, that's for sure, because you're facing the top-tier pitchers. So if they're flying out of the ballpark, they're going to be very valuable runs. Guys, you know here on Toe in the Slab that we like to talk frequently about the Yankees from episode to episode. But did you know that the Rail Riders, the Yankees' AAA affiliate team, plays only about two hours from Yankee Stadium? It is an easy ride on the interstate across into New Jersey, and into Pennsylvania. So take a trip, check out the Baby Bombers in action at PNC Field. It is a beautiful facility. They have great stuff happening at the park. Every single homestand. Friday nights, fireworks. Every single Friday. So you get a fireworks show every time you go out to the ballpark to start your weekend. They have great drink deals on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Wagon Wednesdays, where you can bring your dog to a minor league baseball game. There is so much to do, so many more promotions on their schedule from now up until the end of the season. 
check it out, visiting their website at swbrailriders.com. The best part about minor league baseball, so many times you go to a game, there are so many experiences happening around you that you often leave the ballpark not even knowing what the final score of the game was because you're having so much fun with all that's going on inside the stadium. Best part about this, it's AAA baseball. You're also going to be able to feast your eyes on some of the top prospects that we've been talking about and guys who could be playing in the Bronx in the not-too-dear-distant future. So see the Yankees' hottest prospects make their way up to the big leagues. Get your tickets today by going to swbrailriders.com. I I think another wrinkle to this excitement of the Subway Series is the fact that we are about a week away from the trade deadline. And, yeah, the, the Mets could use more slug. The Yankees reportedly looking for a more productive outfield piece as well. So you can draw some similarities in terms of players that could be fits for both teams. So you have that wrinkle where, oh, maybe both the Yankees and Mets are looking to make trades for the same players. And you mentioned Aaron Boone being a little lighthearted. I love I love hearing Aaron Boone do something like that, just kind of keep things loose when you have so many different details of Yankee minor leaguers taking out a lineup. Uh, that, that's the essence of Aaron Boone right there. But uh, maybe a Luis Castillo could – Potential, it's it's probably a a luxury for a team like the Mets, maybe depending on what Jacob Degrom is. But we get another week of ambiguity surrounding Jacob Degrom, so we don't really know what the pitching need exactly is for the Mets. Only they do internally. But the Mets a little vague on Degrom's next steps in his rehab assignment through a side session at City Field Sunday afternoon. That ambiguity. Does that ramp up the concerns that fans should have with DeGrom status at the moment? Yes, he's so important. So anything that happens with him is going to be magnified. But he already has had several rehab starts, and he, his arm strength is clearly back. He's, he's broken 100 miles an hour, and he has impeccable control. But when he wakes up the next day and says, I'm a little sore in my shoulder, red flags are going to go up all over the place, and rightly so. He knows his body very well. He's not going to take any chances. He can opt out after this year as well in his contract and try to, to get a mega deal. I'm not sure if that's going to be the case with all, with all the arm problems this year, but I wouldn't put it past him to come and have a big finish and a big postseason and, and light it up. So anything is possible with Jacob DeGrom, but he seems like a player who really is super cautious right now with his arm after everything he's been through. And for an athlete, and I've said this all you know many times, Understanding the difference between pain and injury is the key for any athlete in any field. And that is what separates a lot of great athletes is understanding your body, understanding, Hey, this is the time to stop. And this is the time to push through a little bit of soreness. And Jacob deGrom certainly has had his problems with that over his career, but nonetheless, you know, he is such a big piece that anything that goes wrong with him is, is going to just, send up uh, uh, the red flags all across, you know, Mets universe. You don't want a, a minor setback to become a major setback and the Mets have enough cushion. I know they're in a tight division race, but as far as postseason, their playoff odds are well over 99%. You can afford to slow walk it if you have to, because you can't risk a setback that knocks them out for a month or two months. Cause then that resets his clock all over again. And then you start to put October in jeopardy. So the ground status, only the Mets really know for sure. 
and it could be influencing what they have on their shopping list with the trade deadline coming up. There, uh, there have been more rumors, more possibilities swirling, but the August 2nd deadline fully approaching one full week left until this trade deadline. We take a look at a big name like Juan Soto. I said last week, I think he's going to be dealt. And I think this is a kind of question that you kind of have to ask day by day because things could always change. I know you guys were along the belief that the Nats will hold on to him, at least to the offseason. Do you guys still think the Nats hold on to Soto before August 2nd? Wow. You know, that, that is the question of the day. I think the Washington Nationals are playing it right. They're trying to create this frenzy of, well, well, we've got new ownership coming in. We need to get this done before the new ownership changes hands, which potentially could be in September. ESPN has reported several things through Buster Olney, who seems to think that the GM's general consensus is, is that this has a good chance of getting done over, before the deadline. I find it fascinating because he shakes up everything. He slowed, he's bogged down the whole system. Everybody's got to wait on Juan Soto now, and rightly so, because he is the one balance of power changer that's out there, without a doubt. Uh, all, all respect to Luis Castillo, who's also in somewhat in that category as a pitcher. But yeah, it's, it's Juan Soto. It's a generational talent. Is this really going to happen? At first, I said, no way. They're, it's a big game of chicken. The Nationals are going to just say, you give me the world, or I say no. And that's kind of been a little bit of the scuttlebutt behind the scenes. It's sort of, you know, Rizzo, the, the general manager, Rizzo targets the guys he wants. He goes and asks for it and says, uh, take it or leave it, you know, or we'll move on to the next. But he's an old scouting guy. He knows prospects. He knows who he wants to target on each minor league level. And you have to wonder who he likes. We, we've heard rumors he likes Anthony Volpe. So <laughs> watch out. You know, do you do that trade or not? I, I don't know. I don't know what to say to that at this point in the Yankees future at shortstop, but it is Juan Soto. So I think you got, I got to think about everything at this point. It's fascinating. And I know we were saying last week that, oh, that, you know, it's too complicated. Maybe it gets kicked down the road to the off season. Seeing the reporting during this past week and even watching the, the Sunday night game that you were doing last night with Buster only uh, chiming in with his reporting. Maybe it seems like it's it's going to happen. And the, the ownership wrinkle is very interesting, too, because there were some reports uh, in earlier days that maybe this is something that it would a deal would have to wait until after the sale so that the incoming owner can determine what they want to do. But the blood on their hands uh, analogy that, that Buster made, where that, they, that way they can come in and not have the first thing they do be trade the franchise away. People look at Derek Jeter and the Marlins and what happened down there is an yeah. example of, oh my goodness, that's a bad message to send to a fan base, even though they, he thought he was doing the right thing and cleaning up the farm system, building it back up. But you trade John Carlos Stanton and Yelich <laughs> and Ozuna, you know, three all-star outfielders. That, that's tough to do as your first move as an owner. So that does stop and make you think. Yeah, uh, Mike Rizzo has me fully hooked the bait was too tasty guys uh, i i think he's gonna be traded i think uh it's the art of war art the art of the trade war and uh, mike rizzo is excelling right now uh leaving out any possibility and they're they're saying the right things at the moment ahead of august 2nd i like how you kind of grouped soto and castillo together though david because yeah you're not gonna get both right so you have certain teams that were listed as potential suitors for Juan Soto, who also have some pitching needs the, the Yankees, you can definitely make a case for the Mets. Dodgers are in on every list. 
the Mariners have been listed, the Cardinals, the Padres, they've been listed. And I think out of those teams, maybe like only the Padres are a team that don't have starting pitching needs, whether the Reds would deal Castillo to the Cardinals in the division. That's another question. But in your opinion, which team interested in Juan Soto needs Luis Castillo more right now and can focus their immediate attention and should focus their attention on him instead? You can never rule out the Dodgers in this situation. They've dealt with Washington before. They had big blockbusters with them. The Trey Turner deal comes to mind. Trey Turner's a free agent after the season. They locked up Freddie Freeman. Hey, maybe Juan Soto with the Dodgers might long-term make sense for the Dodgers as well. And they have a, the Dodgers always seem to have prospects that intrigue every other organization, even though uh, Rizzo kind of had his pick of the the prospects he liked before in in that particular deal. So I always worry about the Dodgers. I don't think it's going to be the Astros again, even though perennially over the last half a dozen years, it's always been Houston that snuck in and made the big deal, whether it was Justin Verlander in 2017 or even our own Garrett Cole. Uh, Subsequently, it seemed like the Astros were the ones that snuck in and made the big deal and the big splash. I don't think the pitching need is there with the Astros. They really throw the ball well this year. They have a pretty deep starting rotation and Lance McCullers on his way back. So it is interesting. You have to go out West though, and look and look for, you know, for, uh, you know, uh, not only the Dodgers, but maybe the Mariners, maybe the, the Seattle's up and coming and making a move, very hungry franchise, a very rabid fast fan base. Yeah, I've said this before. The Seattle fan base is loud and as strong as just about any fan base, a clearly underrated fan base out in Seattle. So watch out for the Mariners and Jerry DePoto out there has been known to make, make a deal or two. So, you know, I think West, you look out West, both leagues, to me, the Dodgers and the Mariners are interesting watches right now. The Cardinals interest me because out of all the contending teams, they have a below average starting pitcher ERA. They're 18th in the major leagues in starting pitcher ERA. It makes me think that oh, maybe that could uh, give them the boost they need in a tight division race with the Brewers. But the, 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 uh, the, the wrench in there is that they're in the Cardinals division. Is that something that, that, that could hold something up? The Mariners are a wild card no pun intended, rocketing up in the wild card race. You can't ever count out Trader Jerry. Very true. Jerry DePoto uh, hasn't seen a deal that he isn't uh, interested in here in his time between being the Mariners GM and the Angels GM. And I think that brings us nicely to our next topic here, guys. So if Juan Soto is traded, will that influence how the Angels do business with they're two stars, Shohei Otani, Mike Trout. I, I think when I first saw that Soto would be made available, I thought this opened the door for the Angels to do business with those two guys. I think if they were looking to just try and pivot as an organization, because what they've been doing obviously hasn't working. So obviously Otani is more movable. And I think Otani should be made available and the Angels should be entertaining offers. When we learned from various reports Recently, that teams have been calling the Angels about Otani. He's only owed about five and a half million. He's hitting arbitration, I believe, after this season. So he's not that. Ex- uh, no, he's not hitting arbitration. He's going to be a free agent, right? After next year? After 2023. Now. Okay. So after next But there are hints that he's going to be looking to go elsewhere because he's made it known hey, I want to win. Obviously, that's not happening with the Angels here. 
So the reports are that the Angels aren't really interested in moving him, period. I'm wondering if this is ownership being the only reason why the Angels are not too, uh, I don't know, not too urgent in fielding offers for Otani. Like, is Artie Moreno the only reason why Shohei Otani is seemingly unavailable in a trade? I think, I think you hit the nail right on the head, Shaq. Artie Moreno is a very uh, strong owner with strong opinions, a very hands-on owner. Legendary stories about him throughout the organization. If you can get Billy Epler on the side, he could tell you a few that the, the current Mets GM. So, yes, uh, Artie Moreno is driving the bus on this. It's Hollywood, you know, even though it's uh, Orange County, it's the Anaheim Angels of the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, whatever, whatever you want to call it out there, their identity up, up against the, the Dodgers. It's the entertainment value, too. I don't, that fan base, that would be a huge blow if you trade Otani just from the entertainment value. But I agree with you, Shaq, that if you really want the, to, to, to enhance the overall health of your organization and you can get the right return back for a once in a generation, more than once in 10 generations to style of player. That yeah, maybe you would entertain that and see if there's an offer that could blow you away. But you do have him for another year. You still have Mike Trout there. You drafted a bunch of pitchers over the last couple of years. Maybe you hit the jackpot. Maybe you can still turn this around next year. Maybe at the trade trade deadline next year, you can entertain Otani at that point. But if they pull the plug on Otani right now, boy, it's just like popping a balloon out in Anaheim. That fan base will be devastated because that's how popular he really is. And it's not just about winning games for an organization. This is the entertainment business. And Otani puts fannies in the seats. He draws the ratings up. He's the only guy, even with Trout injured, and not really a full, full strength right now. He's the only guy that you watch on the Angels right now. If he's gone, wow, you better, you better hit the jackpot if you trade him. One of the rare, true box office draws in the game. And I, a lot of us have been wrestling with uh, wrapping your minds around well, how do you trade Juan Soto? What, what, how do you even get fair value back? Otani throws that in overdrive. How do you get fair value back for Shohei Otani? He's an elite hitter and an elite pitcher. We're talking about, oh, well, if you trade for Soto, you trade for Castillo, you can't do both. Somebody, If somebody goes out there and acquires Shohei Otani, they are getting both. You're getting a middle-of-the-order power bat and, a, and an ace pitcher rolled into one. Well, guys, here's a novel concept when it comes to the Angels. How about we find out? Finally, how about we go out and we find out and you mentioned the box office draw. Yeah, it's great that he puts them in line to win when he's doing his thing on the mound. And yeah, sometimes impacting the offense, but more often than not, they're losing games when Otani's not in uh, involved directly as a two way player. So it's not working. And how many years in a row are we going to hear? Well, maybe if this happens, if this gets it falling into place with Trout and Otani, things will be rosy. It hasn't happened. Peel the Band-Aid off. See what can happen here. You're going to get a solid return, obviously. That could finally reset and accelerate your entire organization and not have people just focusing on two players in Anaheim. Ooh, I like edgy Shaq. Shaq's got an edge today. I like it. <laughs> the Angels good. piss me yeah. off, guys. <laughs> I like it. I like it. We're going to take this, this podcast up a notch here. Uh, you know, I, I, There's somebody on Twitter in the Angels universe that had a really funny uh, – Funny take the other day. He said, uh, oh, yeah, on today's news, Mike Trout just passed Mickey Mantle on this uh, historical stat. And uh, Shohei Otani did something that hasn't been done since Babe Ruth. And the Angels lost 9-7. to 
You know, I mean, it was like one of those funny tweets that, that put it into perspective. So I, 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 I hear the frustration in your voice, Jack. It's a valid point. I'm sure they're kicking it around too in the, in the Angels universe on what to do about this thing. Uh, yes, trying to win the most important thing, right? Some organizations, that's been, been the knock, right? Is that the number one thing anymore with organizations? Some organizations just actually trying to win or is it trying to put, you know, a product on the field that, that generates revenue year in and year out and that's sustainable. And that's kind of what the lockout was all about, you know, maybe a more on the bottom end of, of teams tanking, but nonetheless, what is the model nowadays for the major league franchises and especially somebody like the angels and tremendous sponsorship dollars that Otani brings in tremendous revenue that he generates and what, I mean, yeah, we want to win, but the random variance of the game now, analytics, yeah, it's a, it's, it's potluck in postseason. You know, what, what is, what, yeah, what is the model nowadays? I mean, it's very interesting to me, to your point, Jack, that wow, if you're going to explore trading show, Hey, Otani, boy, there's so many layers to peel back that you really better think it through. And really, once again, if you're trading for prospects, you got to guess, right. At that, that's a tough one. I mean, you can get the, you go back historically and look at the top 10 prospects in every organization over the last 20 years, how many of them made it? How, how many of them panned out? You know, it's, it, it's a crapshoot. It can, it, it can really, uh, you know, you can, it's really hit or miss. That's Jack said, it. the angels pissed me off. I'm glad because they've really pissed me off too. They <laughs> have squandered. They spent the last decade wasting Mike Trout. And now they have Trout and Otani and they still can't contend uh, Coney, you mentioned the, uh, the tweet. It's one of my favorites of, of baseball Twitter, and maybe, uh, maybe folks out there have seen it. It is from at Matt Atomic or Matomic in uh, last May. Every time I see an Angels highlight, it's like Mike Trout hit three home runs and raised his average to 528, while Shohei Otani did something that hasn't been done since Tungsten Arm O'Doyle of the 1921 Akron Groomsman, but the Tigers defeated the Angels 8-3. to three. So that really does sum up the Angels, uh, the recent Angels era in a nutshell. I think that's what angers me about the angels is the confliction of entertainment value, marketing money, and then being in the business of winning. I guess you can't be uh, having a foot in each side here. And, and for me, I'm just thinking about the business of winning a, a return for Otani could potentially stabilize multiple areas of your team. And yeah, I hear the marketing dollars and all that stuff, but box office draw, entertainment sensation. Look, box offices and shows, they, they don't, they're not successful on just that one night a week draw. So long-term, you have them, if he's going to be leaving and saying that he wants to win and he's more interested in the business of winning, right? Well, then pivot here, man. Just pivot. That The, the, the Angels story and their approach has been driving me up a wall for a better part of a decade. And I think they have a chance to use one of the pieces that they value so highly for other reasons, maybe other than winning, obviously there's winning within this player, but I think you hit it, David, they're, they're more in love with the marketing value of a player like Otani than the winning value and the value that they could get in a return. Guys, I am here to tell you that you can turn big league action into big winnings with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Major League Baseball. Right now, new customers can bet just $5 on any game and get $100 in free bets 
instantly. Plus, all customers can combine multiple bets for a shot at an even bigger payout with DraftKings Same Game Parlays. At DraftKings Sportsbook, you'll be able to bet on your favorite batter to hit a double in his next plate appearance, your favorite pitcher's next pitch to be a strike, and so much more. It's that finite where you can bet on certain items. So you have the second half of the baseball season coming up. The all-star break is in the rearview mirror now. There are plenty of races to choose from and certain teams that you want to zero in on to make a big splash going down the stretch. And to make things even sweeter, DraftKings is stepping up to the plate with DraftKings stepped up same game parlays. The more legs you add, the bigger boost your winnings receive. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code SLAB. That's S-L-A-B. New customers can make any $5 bet and get $100 in free bets instantly. That's promo code SLAB only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Major League Baseball. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. MLB trademarks used with permission. All right, the Boston Red Sox. They came out of the break here. They were swept by the Blue Jays at Fenway Park over the weekend. They were outscored 38-10. to 10. And they're now at 500 at the time of this recording. And even 48 and 48, they're on the outside looking in at the wild card race in the American League. Which way do the Boston Red Sox go at the trade deadline? Great question. Very interesting. You know, I look at Bogarts as short at shortstop as the key in my mind. There were reports this spring that they made him an extension offer that was almost laughable, like a one-year extension offer. He's got the right to opt out after this year. He could be gone. He's having a great year. He is coveted by a lot of franchises, including the Padres, who love him. They could plug him right into shortstop next to Manny Machado, especially if the Juan Soto trade doesn't pan out for them. And I think they're, they're players in that one as well. So, yeah, Boston's been known to do this. This is the organization that let Mookie Betts go. So the Red Sox are hard to figure out. It's been a tough go up there in Boston for them right now, even though you could still say, well, we still got a shot to sneak in the wild card, maybe one of the, one of the, the, the final two slots. But at the same point, you know, Bogarts is a big piece for them. You know, what do you do with him? He's your most marketable piece right now. They're not going to do anything with Devers. They can control him for a little bit longer at least. But you know, Bogarts is the key. What, is the, what do the Red Sox do? Do they pivot? To your point, Shaq. What's the deal? Who can they get? Uh, Padres have some good young pitching, some good, good, uh, whether it's McKenzie Gore or pretty good farm system too. They've got some pieces to play with. Um, be interesting to see what they do there. And the, you know, James wrote up the Cardinals too. The Cardinals might be the best position team to make deals because they have major league ready rookies that have already made a splash. They have a good farm system. They might have the best crop of young major league talent right now to make trades. So yeah, they are, they are, player right now in any deal depending on what they see their needs are the red Sox, as great as they were in june 20 and 6 they're 5 and 15 to start july the five game losing streak being outscored by the yankees and blue jays 67 to 13 that's a minus 54 run differential the worst in any five game span by any mlb team since the 1899 cleveland spiders who went 20 and 134 and are generally regarded as the worst team that ever existed. So not the kind of company you want to be in. I forgot about Boston's final two games heading into the all-star break, how lopsided they were. That's what a 28, what is it? 28 to four, 28 to 27 to three. Okay. 20. In yeah, those two, that, that, the two games in the Bronx. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm saying that blue Jays game, that, that first game that they had, <laughs> oh, that game's going to make me forget. Yeah. The 28 yeah. to five game that made me forget all about, 
how they rolled into the break in those final two games at Yankee Stadium. So, yeah, Bogarts is the key guy. Yeah, Chris Sale was a watching. big blow, obviously, for them. That might change yeah. their thinking when you lose him, even though you might, you're probably getting back before the year's over, but that, that's a huge blow for them. For sure. Going down with that, that fractured pinky. Um, it's so interesting because when you look at Bogarts, potentially Devers down the line too, they're kind of asking themselves the same the same questions that they did with Mookie Betts. And are we like rolling down a path where you think about that core from 2018? Betts, Benintendi's already gone. Bogarts could potentially be out the door in a week. Then you have the question of what we do with Devers down the line. Maybe that's the one guy you lock up. But that core who we thought, wow, they're young. They have so many years ahead of them looking really good for the Red Sox right now. They could all be out of town within like a four-year span from winning that World series. Yeah, that person's <laughs> unknown so far. <laughs> right. <laughs> if you're not going to keep Mookie Betts, then they, uh, all bets are off. Yeah. No pun intended. All right, guys, moving towards the West, the Dodgers. Andrew Heaney is returning for LA this week. He's making his way back from shoulder inflammation. Which Dodgers pitchers return are you more interested in? Is it Heaney? Or a guy like Dustin May, who is on a rehab assignment. He's nearing his return from Tommy John surgery. Dustin May, just for his moss, right? I want to see that big, bushy, <laughs> redheaded uh, mop going on out there. You know, just in terms of stuff, you know, we, we talked about this, Shaq, Shaq and James and I. We've all talked about, you know, uh, this, this metric called Stuff Plus. You know, Saris, among others, uh, has been kind of at the forefront of this. And just rating pitches. In terms of stuff, and Dustin May blows away Andrew Heaney in that category. 100-mile-an-hour fastballs and sinkers, his delivery, his release point, how tall and lean he is. He's a unique guy. I'm, I'm looking at him. I want to I see that stuff plus come. Andrew Heaney's kind of a reclamation project, you know? He's kind of a sleeper, sneaky, quick fastball up. Sometimes he gives up a lot of home runs. So, yeah, I mean, he, he could be a player, but Dustin May's the guy not only now but in the future for the Dodgers. I think he's the better long-term bet. But as far as, you know, who's interesting, I, I think Heaney's fascinating because he was so bad last year, and he goes to the Dodgers, looks good in a couple of starts, gets hurt, misses a, a bunch of time. But now it's an embarrassment of riches for the Dodgers. 272 ERA leading the major leagues by far in rotation ERA. Yeah, I want to see – more of what Andrew Heaney was able to do in three starts before having that shoulder inflammation, because it looked really good. There was the nice neat story that the Dodgers uncovered something with what they saw. That's a big reason why he was the first free agent off the board in the off season. So yeah, long-term I'm all for may in the immediate short term. I want to see more of Andrew Heaney. That's who I'm more intrigued by, especially because you've had the unsung heroes of the Dodgers rotation already. The Andersons, the Gonsolins, can Heaney continue what he started down the stretch for a Dodger rotation that look, when you saw Walker Bueller go down, a lot of questions were raised whether or not they had enough pieces in that rotation. Obviously they're holding their own, have the lowest ERA in the league. I want to see if they can continue to add to that internally before they potentially go make a move for a guy like uh, Luis Castillo. Something else that we've noticed around this time of the season for pitchers maybe happens also at the beginning of the month of July, but teams around the league, they have a couple of months of data and scouting evidence under their belts to try and 
approach a certain pitcher on a particular game day. So let's use Nestor Cortez as an example here, because he jumped out of the gate, had wild success in April, May, and parts of June, but right around mid-June or so, we saw some some potholes for Nestor Cortez. He's been able to readjust now, but before he was doing that, the opponents were adjusting to what they saw with his early success. So obviously a game of adjustments here. Using Cortez as an example, what has he done to readjust from the adjustment and kind of stay ahead of opponents after a handful of spotty starts where he was kind of giving up a lot of home runs and now last two starts, 13 innings, just one run allowed. How has he adjusted from the opponent's adjustment? Just from what I've seen, and in, in particular, the start in Baltimore, he's throwing more fastballs. He got a little cutter happy for a while. He's got a great cutter. It, it's evolved over the year. He started using it more and more. He can throw it to both sides of the plate. He would start off right-handed batters with backdoor cutters and then go inside with it. Some of these right-handed hitters started to sit on that cutter, especially the one in, giving up some big home runs on that cutter in that maybe stays on the plate. So yesterday in Baltimore, how many late swings do we see on that four-seam fastball at 92 to 94 miles an hour right on by? He gets excellent carry on that fastball. He gets uh, excellent riding action from his lower release point. So, yes, he's kind of just gone back to fastballs and blowing it by him, and the word's out that, hey, this guy's throwing a lot of cutters. So the hitters are kind of getting caught late on his fastball now it's a great adjustment for Nestor Cortez he's obviously very smart he understands what's going on he has a lot of confidence and he's not afraid to challenge hitters he gets a lot of the plate with his four-seam fastball and it served him well over the last couple of starts a lot of late swings a lot of swings and misses just on that that riding carrying four-seam fastball opponents two for 21 against Nestor's four-seamer in the last two starts combined and one thing that jumped out to me about the Baltimore start on Sunday is that he had a season low 15% usage rate for the cutter. So he was shying away from the cutter more, like you said, Cody. David, how easy is it for a pitcher to see the areas of their games that have become exposed? Do they see that on their own or more often than not, do they have a pitching coach help them out there? The feedback is immediate now. Everybody's got their own iPad. The minute you go in the dugout, you, you know, Carpenter's looking at his at-bat. He just hit a home run two minutes later. Pitchers in between innings can look at exactly at the iPad and, and see what hitters are doing and read the bats and understand what the approaches are. So, yes, it's never more than ever has feedback been instantaneous, real-time on the ground, and how you interpret that information and how you get it to these pitchers in real-time is really a key, and I think the Yankees are – Really good at this. Matt Blake, that's one of his fortes is, you know, taking, taking the, the bullshit out of it, so to speak. You know, this, is, this isn't the old school pitching coach. Hey, you're, you're doing this or you're hitting your heel or hold your shoulder in or, you know, all these old cliches that pitching coaches have used for generations. Now it's, hey, here's what you do when you're going well. Here's what you're doing now. I'm going to hold you accountable to that. And this is where you need to go with it. This isn't my opinion. Yeah, this is what I see with my eyes. Yeah, there's always room for the eye test. But there's also, hey, here's what they're doing. Here's what the numbers say. Here's the data. Here's your release point. Here's your spin rate. Here's the shape of your pitches. This is what's different. And it's indisputable. It's like you bring that to a pitcher to a pitcher during the course of a game or in between starts. How do you how do you argue with that if you're a pitcher? I used to argue with old-time pitching coaches all the time. I'd bang my head against the wall and 
No, that's not the way you do it. Yes, I can drop down and throw sliders and start at a right-hander's hips and break it over the inside corner. And I butt heads with pitching coaches for years. You can't do that. No, that's a home run pitch. You got to do it traditionally. You're, you're unconventional. That's you're, you're never going to, you're going to hurt your arm. And I can't tell you how many, how many fights I've had over the years with, with old school pitching coaches, I test pitching coaches. That's probably one of the reasons why I'm so uh, enamored with analytics with the next level of, you know, an, analyzing pitches, what's really going on. And so, yes, I think, uh, you know, it's never been better for a young pitcher to, to get information quicker and information that you can trust. I think the iPad is one of the best inventions over the last 25, 30 years or so. It probably would have saved relationships in baseball, right, David? Well, yeah, absolutely it does. It just, you know, as I said, you know, there's a lot of pitching theory out there. There's a lot of old school, new school. You know, we talk about it. Our podcast is kind of based on a little bit of that, the old school, new school approach. And, you know, for me, um, there's a lot of bullshit out there. And it's, it's opinion. And unless you can back it up, unless you, you can, you can justify your theory or your opinion, you're going to get pushed aside rightly. So, because you really need to justify and back up your opinion with facts, with research, with some sort of way that you can show and present your case. This is why I believe in this theory and here's the proof. And that's the way it's done nowadays. And I, I applaud that. I mean, it's, it's next level. It's what I wish I had when I pitched. It's next level stuff that you can get out there. And, you know, why not? I mean, the whole world has changed. Why shouldn't baseball with it? I mean, every, every industry that you can think of has benefited from more data or from more research or from a better way to go about it, more information. You know, baseball is not going to stay in, in the 19th century. You know, it's, it's like every other industry. You're, you're going to benefit from new technology. You know who else backs up a lot of theories with hard data and, and great proof is uh, Eno Saris from The Athletic. He and Jason Stark, they came out with an article over the last couple of days regarding the three true outcomes that we've come to know over recent seasons. Home runs, strikeouts, walks. The common theory is that over the last couple of years, that's it. That's all off the offense has been comprised of, right? This season, home runs, walks, and strikeouts are all down for the first time in 17 years, Stark and, and, you know, Saris brought this to light. They asked a number of executives around the game, why they think this is happening. And they listed a couple of possible reasons after reading this article. I'm wondering which reason is most plausible in your eyes. Well, lead me a little further. I haven't had a chance to read the article. All right. So, so basically, Jason Stark, Eno Saris, they highlighted that the three-true outcome is dwindling this season. Home runs, walks, strikeouts, all down first time in 17 years. And the theories that they brought up, one was the baseball composition as an explanation. They were talking about how, I guess, with the baseball composition, there are fewer home runs. Well, fewer homers also lead to fewer walks. So there's that. And then there's the possibility that we, and this is something you've talked about, David, how hitters, the strategy for hitters is behind pitching these days. Are hitters changing their approach? Are they less focused on launch angle, more about hitting against the shift instead of over the shift? So those are some theories that were brought up. There are a bunch of different opinions, which I think made the article even more entertaining. I'm just curious what you think. They also 
brought up the possibility that's just a bunch of, of smaller details there that kind of snowball with one another. But I was wondering if you thought there was a definitive reason why home runs, walks, and strikeouts were all down. Well, well, thank you. I, I, I have to go read that article. I mean, I'm a big fan of Jason Stark and Eno Saris, and they're great. Um, a couple of things come to mind. I'll back up a couple games ago. Didn't Aaron Boone pinch hit Isaiah Kiner Falefa with Josh Donaldson on the bench in a two out situation. He got a base hit, hit a little ground ball between short and third and ended up getting the RBI out of it because he wanted contact. That says a lot. Aaron Boone, right? I mean, you had some, you had some thump on that bench. People were going, are you kidding me? How could you leave Josh Donaldson on the bench? Maybe he had a little shoulder or was banged up or something that we don't know, but it's interesting that yes, um, Hitters are catching up with velocity more. Another thought of mine is um, uh, the right-handed pitcher, uh, Albreu, for the, for the Yankees. They picked him back up. The, the Royals released – he throws 100 miles an hour. Royals released him after four appearances? Really? Give up on a guy throwing 100 miles an hour? It's like it's commonplace now. Oh, yeah, we can get another guy that throws 100 miles an hour. So, yes, the velocity is getting caught up, too. The hitters are using high-velocity high pitching machines. They're training better. They're seeing the velocity more and they're getting more used to it. So velocity isn't playing as much. Um, spider tech era, the bazooka balls at the top of the zone aren't, aren't as prevalent as they once were. And just the good old fashioned entertainment value where the rubber meets the road. We've talked about this before. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of analytics. I understand, you know, thump and power makes a big difference in a game. One swing can change the whole game. But with all that being said, a little more action. Maybe the GMs, maybe the ownership is seeing the value of, you know what? We need more action. We need guys to put the ball in play. We need diversity in our lineup. The Yankees certainly kind of got that memo from an all right-handed power hitting lineup over the last couple of years to now more diversity. Isaiah kiner Falefa is part of that. You know, whether he's long-term or not, he is a, a high contact guy, a hard guy to strike out. And the fact that Aaron Boone used him to pinch it in a big spot really kind of, to me, spoke volumes about, whoa, stylistically, the contact hitters are, are gaining traction again, little by little are, are starting to, Hey, it's nice to have diversity. We need guys that can thump, but we need a guy in here. That's a contact guy, Anthony Rizzo in between judge and Stanton big difference for the Yankees because Rizzo's hard to strike out in a big RBI situation. So yeah, it makes you think, but maybe it's just a good old fashioned entertainment too. The fans want to see more action as well. And maybe ownership sees that as well. Home runs being down makes a lot of sense with a uh, deader ball. So home run rate going down makes sense. Uh, laying out in the article, the correlation between uh, walk rate and home run rate, it tends to track very well over time. And that makes sense. If you're less likely to get punished for uh, being in the zone, then maybe you're going to be in the zone more. So you'll have fewer walks. So that makes sense. The strikeout rate, and they, then they touched on it. it a huge part of the drop could be chalked up to two things. One, the national league is not sending up pitchers to bat anymore. That's a big chunk of it. And the other part is the spider tack because the, while the strikeout rate is down from last year, most of that is, is made up from the earlier part of last season. So if you compare the post spider tack sticky stuff ban uh, from the second half of last season to this year, it's pretty similar for the whole 2021 season, strikeouts are down compared to that. So I think these declining strikeout rate could be chalked up to those two things primarily because strikeout rate is down, but it's not down that much. We're basically down to 
about 2018 levels, which is still very high. So um, I think it's just something to monitor uh, as, as we move along here. There's so many possibilities, which makes, makes it a fascinating conversation. We're obviously don't, not going to know the answer. I think as it pertains to the ball that's more dead here in, in 2022, Kevin Long, the, the Phillies hitting coach, he had a pretty good quote. He said, the mindset of, hey, doesn't matter how hard I hit the ball, it's not going anywhere, so I'm going to shorten my swing. And that could be something that we're seeing too. That's coming from a major league hitting coach right now in, in 2022, but something to keep an eye on because, yeah, three true outcome has been like the trendy thing to kind of say to not poke fun at where we were at offensively in recent years, but just make people aware that, Hey, this is, this is what we're getting. Are you okay with that? Some people weren't, I know we, we probably, you know, weren't, but yeah, David, I, it goes back to that entertainment value. Like you said, I think there, there could be something there as well, how to make the game more appealing. And you talk about the Yankees that have the ability to go the other way. There are numerous guys that could hit the ball the other way, but when you talk about, Isaiah Kiner Falefa, and I think about all the qualities that he brings to the plate. The first thing that jumps out to mind is how he has spread the ball pretty well here in 2022. So uh, it's a uh, it's an interesting conversation. It's hard to strike Jason. out. Yeah, yeah. He is. you know the one trend we've seen Jack too across the league is a lot of earlier swings. First pitch mm-hmm. hacks are up. You know, hitters. Uh, the, the problem with the three true outcome that we found is that, okay, you know, we know we want guys that can slug and we know we want guys that slug can also work own the strike zone and get a walk. Right. Luke Voigt was great for the Yankees in that regard. He, even in his minor league career it was like, wow, he has a high on base percentage. He, he's got tremendous slug, but he also can work a walk. The guys that work that are working walks and eyeballing a lot of pitches, put themselves in positions to strike out more because you end up taking pitches or close pitches. You don't swing at a lot of pitches that are on the borderline. They get called strikes. You're in the hole, two strikes, and now the strikeout pitches come. So it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of a theory of hitting, whereas these hitters that are worried about their strikeout totals are going, you know what, first pitch fastball, I'm swinging, and I'm going to do damage. And you look at the numbers on first pitches across the league, it's one of the best pitches to swing at. Generally, pitchers are trying to get more of the plate. They're trying to get ahead. The numbers on – the difference between being 01 and a 10 are, are huge ahead in the count behind in the count, every cliche that goes with that with pitching coaches and managers and pitchers that we hear. So hitters know, Hey, first pitch right there. Bang. Jose Altuve might be the greatest example of that. You throw a fastball, a lot of the plate on the first pitch of that guy, he's going to lose it. You know, a little guy's got to pop. He's going to hit it. It's so Aaron judge this year, swinging a lot more first pitches. So yeah, I, I, I haven't seen the numbers. Now James and I talked about that, but they're up first pitch swings across the border are up in both leagues this year. Three true outcome article for me. No, sorry, Jason Stark. Go check it out at The Athletic. It's a good one. Guys, I need to tell you about one of my favorite places to dine out. That is Bear Burger. And when this ad read popped up into my inbox from John Boy Media, I was genuinely stoked because I love going to Bear Burger. And a big reason why is I love options when I go out to eat. And Bear Burger, their slogan literally is something for everyone. Yes, even you. So if you are a picky eater, if you don't eat meat, there is still something for you on the Bear Burger menu. I go there. I like their Hudson salad. I don't prescribe to the bun, even though they have tasty looking pretzel buns, but I like their Hudson salad, but there are a ton of burger options. They have your organic beef, turkey burger, bison. Like I mentioned, you can get a chicken burger, 
There's an Impossible Burger, Black Bean Burger as well. So they have really cool twists on some options for you, whether you have dietary restrictions, if you're 100% vegan, it is all there for you. Quick reminder, their Bear Burger Kitchen and Bar, the happy hour, it is the best in New York, 12 to 7 p.m., Monday through Friday. Like I mentioned, bison burgers are there. They have elk burgers, ostrich burgers, so there's a little bit of an exotic side if you're into daring greatly with your food. Uh, also, they have bar bites at the Bear Burger Kitchen and Bar. All food items, just $9.95, and the bar bites available Monday through Friday, 4 to 7 p.m. Lunch specials as well in the Bear Burger Kitchen and Bar. That one's from 12 to 4. Click the link in the description to find yourself at your favorite new happy hour spot, your burger joy your luncheon, whatever you want to do it. Bear Burger is open to all options for all. It is one of my favorite places to go, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. It all happens at Bear Burger. This week in pitching history, we have arrived. James, what do you have for us this week? All right, guys. Last week, we had Coney's perfect game. We're going to stay in that lane. So July 28, 1991, Dennis Martinez, El Presidente of the Montreal Expos, pitches a perfect game against the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium. Then, three years later to the day, July 28th, 1994, Kenny Rogers of the Texas Rangers pitches a perfect game against the California Angels in Arlington. So there's 23 perfect games in MLB history. Coney, you're number 16. El Presidente was number 13. Kenny Rogers, 14. We have not had a perfect game since King Felix, Felix Hernandez, on August 15th, 2012. So we're approaching 10 years without a perfecto. This is already the longest drought in the major leagues without a perfect game since the 13-year run between Catfish Hunter in 1988 and Len Barker in 1981. So guys, we're, we're overdue for a perfecto. Coney, you need some company. Yeah, Kershaw, a couple of them this year, right? Seven inning got taken out early in the year and then another one got broken up after seven. So yeah. There's a couple of guys flirting with it. I mean, there's a handful of guys that can carry it, right? Unless their pitch count's really low. It has to be the perfect storm. Sandy Al- Al- Alcantara, maybe one of those guys. The guy I would show some love to, you know, which I will at the end here. But, yeah, the, the number of starters that can carry those innings and that pitch count late in the game and that will be allowed to do it is kind of a short list right now. That's the thing between that and the number of no hitters that we have seen in recent years over the last decade. Would if, if we asked you, hey, when was the last perfect game off the top of your head? Would you have gone all the way back to 2012? No, actually, no. I mean, that was a little bit surprising to me. You got a decade going on now without one. So, yeah, I there's always one guy. There's always an outlier mm-hmm. that comes along. That just has that magical day. It's a perfect storm day, you know, where everything just falls your way. Your pitch counts under control. So yeah, you think you know, especially in, in the high strikeout era, and it might it might happen, but it, it just shows you that it's it's a it's not just the pitcher and the stuff you have that day. It's the Babbitt gods in your favor. It's the random variance of the game that just falls in line that day for whatever reason. And, there's more to it than meets the eye, obviously. The, the further removed I get from my particular perfect game, the more I realize that to be true, especially having been in several games before that perfect game where I lost it after the seventh inning. I think I had a half a dozen games or so that I had a no-hitter or something like that going after seven innings and the bounce of a ball, a cue shot, you know, 
a hanging slide or one bad pitch, you know, something always can derail you that makes you understand how rare and appropriately so how rare a perfect game is to do. Maybe, maybe somebody gets it this week. Now that, that, now that we bring it up, maybe Zach Wheeler will do it on Thursday or maybe Kyle Wright will do it on Friday. Who knows? And this, uh, the last two weeks over the course of history it's uh it's perfect game season so we still have a few more days here until we flip the calendar uh over to august uh three up three down david you kind of hinted at yours moments ago what do you have for us here yeah you know i gave some love to garrett cole you know talking about just the the value of a durable number one guy in his prime as the preeminent you know the, the durable rock guy well I, I gotta throw love on the national league side to sandy alcantara he's just uh remarkably really coming into his own we've seen him evolve over the last few years he's still kind of not quite to his peak like Garrett Cole is that's why I say Garrett Cole's the preeminent stud so to speak in the big leagues right now but Sandy's right there with him you know the innings pitched every he's just a monster he wants it so bad he feels it where skill meets motivation which meet which meets uh just just a not only a motivation, but a, an inner drive, an inner fire, an inner conceit almost. You know, Joe Torre used to talk about this inner conceit that, that you kind of need to have. And, uh, you know, not in a bad way, in a good way. And he's got it. God, you just watch him on the mound, the way he pitches, the way he feels it right now. Well, he's on some kind of roll. So he is uh, right with Garrett Cole as the preeminent number one. Wow, hey, you, you need a number one starter. Well, yeah, of course, Jacob DeGrom throws 102 on the black when he's healthy. Max Scherzer, of course, Hall of Fame career. He's passing Bob Gibson on the all-time strikeout list. Wait a minute. Right now, in your prime, right now, a game-changing starter at the top of your rotation. It's Garrett Cole at Sandy Alcantara right now. Two runs in six innings with 10 strikeouts in Pittsburgh on Sunday. That was a, that was a light workload for him because that snapped a streak of – 13 consecutive starts going seven plus innings. You just don't see that anymore. 13 straight starts of seven innings. That was the longest streak since Clayton Kershaw in 2014. I was just looking at Sandy's baseball reference page. You know how they have like the nickname tab and they have Sandman for Sandy Alcantara. Have you guys heard that with him? I bet. I feel like that's a reach. There, there are a lot of these nicknames on baseball reference that I'm like, eh, that's a stretch. Yeah. I haven't heard that one. Yeah, no, that's first. That's first I've heard. I've not heard of that one. I was wondering, I think, I think a good nickname for him would be El Duro, the durable. Yeah. I, I like mean, that. I don't want to jinx anything. I don't know if that's taboo in a pitcher's head, David, you could probably answer that, but I thought that would be pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty good for Sandy Alcantara. It's calling it like you see it, right? I mean, he yeah. is what he is. I mean, if you think around, man, there's a lot of great pitchers out there. I have respect. You know, this is a pitching podcast. But to me, if you like, wow, I mean, who are you picking to lead your staff? You need a number one stud in his prime that you can count on, not only just for this year or the next few starts, for the next several years. Who are you picking? Those two guys are it for me. I mean, am I missing somebody? Gary Cole you, and Sandy Alcantara are the two preeminent, durable Number one, you don't even think about them making their next start. Of course they are. Mm -hmm. And of course they're going to go deep. And yeah, they're going to get nicked up here and there. Yeah, Garrett Coles get, gets nicked up here and there, but he posts up every five days whenever you need him and he's ready to go. He's prepared. He's throwing 100. You know, he's just in, in impeccable condition and in, in their primes. And, and Sandy's right there. With, they're closing in on Garrett in, in that regard. Now this year puts him right 
right there in the National League as the number one preeminent durable stud leading your staff. We Can't are go wrong with Sandy being 26. Yeah. Right. We, in case you haven't figured just it out. Just coming by into now. his prime. Yeah. He's just <laughs> entering his prime years. In, in case people are slow here and you haven't figured it out yet, we're big fans of guys who post up on Tone the Slab. There we go. James, who do you have here on three up, three down? Well, here's a guy who posts up. Framber Valdez had his 16th consecutive quality start on Sunday in Seattle. Six and two-thirds, three runs, eight Ks, and another Astros win. 16 straight starts dating back to late April. So every turn that he's making, he's going at least six innings, and he's allowing no more than three earned runs. That is the definition of just giving your chance to uh, your team a chance to win every single start. Unique, unique profile too, right? That, that high ground ball rate, that nasty sinker he throws, tremendous movement, and that good curveball too. I mean, he is the groundhog. He, he's the number one groundhog in the game. It's hard to lift, you know, hard to get the ball in the air off of him, much less hit homers. I'm fascinated by the organic turnaround of the Astros rotation over the last several years. Framber Valdez is just a big reason why. And people are like, oh, what are you going to have for the Astros rotation in a playoff series? Well, they kind of picked them out of the ground and they're they're right in front of you here come October. So it's just so interesting to me how they, or again, organically did it. Didn't go out, make big trades didn't sign a, a flashy free agent. Obviously they have Verlander, but the bulk of their rotation, there are guys that either developed as young major leaguers and have come into their own from Valdez, certainly being one of them here. Yeah. Their GM Jeff Lou now got all of the heat for the, the trash, the banging the trash can thing, but wow, what an organization he built. They're still reaping the benefits of his reorganization yeah. of that whole system from top to bottom and scouting and drafting he he did a remarkable job for them and i don't know if we'll ever see him again with him with a major league chance again i don't know he seems the one the one guy who really you know is the gm of that controversy he's the scapegoat so i don't Mm -hmm. know i mean if you Shaq, you win the lottery you get to buy a major league franchise would you consider him as a gm i tell you what probably not because i've also heard some not too flattering things about jeff luno in terms of personality and everything like that so i I like to be around nice people. I didn't exactly hear the most warmest things yeah. said about Jeff Luno. He showed but... the he showed the door to the baseball guys in a hurry. Yeah, there yeah. was a, there was a yeah you know, yeah. I, I hear what you're saying there. There was a lack of grace there, especially with lifers, the baseball lifers. And yeah, that goes to the heart, right? Of uh, yeah. new and old school. You just but you can't dispute what what the, the work that was put in under his watch. Uh, I don't think that uh, I, I don't I don't think the transformation of the Astros starting rotation from what it was is talked about enough in, in the game today. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys and, and James with Framber Valdez. Um, for me, I wanted to just shout out the pirates bullpen, nothing that they've kind of particularly done on the mound, but we saw what they're doing in the bullpen and a picture surfaced on social media that shows that the pirates are growing banana peppers among other things in their bullpen. And then One picture led to another, and they showed more vegetables being grown. So they have a full veggie garden going on in their bullpen, and that makes me wonder, David, what is the most unique thing that has been harvested in a Major League bullpen that you've heard about in your time? 
you know, it's usually just the simple, the simple things, tomatoes, you know, back with the Mets at Chase stadium, we had an old bullpen coach, a lifer named Vern Hawshite. It was a, like a, just like you'd think like a, you know, that, like Joe Dugan in a league of their own, or, you know, just an old school, crusty old lifer. And he was big on that, you know, and every day he'd go out there and check it out, you know, and, and another lifer, Joe Pignatano, another big, great baseball name with the Mets too. They'd love to grow their tomatoes out there. So yeah, it was mostly simple stuff, tomatoes uh, to get exotic is a little trickier, the climate, you got to really tend to it. But I think that's the point. It's sort of an, a, an ongoing thing that bonds bullpens. These guys are, are together, this crazy group of, of relievers that, that um, are, live, live in a world that's very volatile in their performance and what's expected of them. It's something to kind of just a little every day. Let's check. Let's do this all together and, and see it grow, see it come together. It kind of mimics this, the Major League Baseball season, too, as well. So the, there's some symbolism there, too, and some togetherness. But, yeah, you want to eat it, too. You want, to, you want it to be good and grow it and eat it. And there's, there's something very uh, uh, satisfying about that. You know, when you sit down and you, you make a salad and this is, hey, I, I, me, I grew this in the bullpen yeah. at Chase Stadium. Eight weeks of hard work and labor for one bowl of salad that <laughs> yeah. costs three bucks. To Very buy symbolic. The store. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the secret within society now. The best salads come from bullpens in major league ballparks. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Organic. Yes. All right, guys. Less than a week now until the trade deadline. We are going to be monitoring all the big names that could be on the move. And if a big name does drop a seismic trade, so to speak, we might have to pop in for a bonus episode as we near the trade deadline here, guys, that's going to do it for this episode. Big thank you to our amazing producer as always, Dan Rourke, the well-traveled Dan Rourke, who gets these podcasts done, whether he is out of town at his parents in his home pad in, in Hoboken flying spirit airlines, his most favorite and trusted airline of choice as well. So big thank you to Dan new episodes of the show drop each and every week, Tuesdays or Wednesdays, please rate, review, subscribe. It is the best way that you can show some love and support for the show. Tone of the slab pitching with David Cohn is a production of John boy media. We will talk to you next week. Everybody enjoy. 